Hello, everyone. Welcome to yet another episode of 51 Stories of Emotional Wellbeing with EAR. Today, I have with me Rohin Bhatt, who's going to tell us how can we as a society help the emotional well-being of queer affirmative people and other marginalized sections of society. Hi, Rohin. Welcome back. Hi, thank you for having me again. So, uh, Rohin, tell me uh, in some specific incidents where you feel that society can actually help in the emotional well-being of uh, people who are struggling for support. You know, I think, especially for queer folks, and I'll say this, especially diverted towards queer folks, is that one of the beliefs that we have is there's nobody queer around us. And I can assure you there are queer folks around you. I think ensuring well-being is to be accepting. Ensuring well-being is to create safe spaces, you know, both in your houses, in your social circles, in your professional settings, and around you, wherever you go. You know, be it a library group or a reading group versus your own dinner table versus anywhere that you go, I can assure you there are going to be queer people. Whether they're out or not is another story. Mm-hmm. But to, for me, what has been essential for my own mental health has been going into safe spaces that I know are going to be safe. Spaces where I know I won't be getting you know, homophobia. So the best thing you can do is to know that you are a safe person for a queer person, that you will not be homophobic, that you will not be transphobic, and that you will also take care if somebody else is transphobic. It's not simply enough that you are not homophobic. It's also important that you address homophobia around you by people that you know. And it also doesn't always have to be acrimonious when you are talking to homophobes. A patient conversation can help, but if it doesn't, you should also be ready to, you know, kind of fight because it is not on queer people to deal with homophobia. I feel it's more important for allies to help to ensure that queer people do not get into these unsafe spaces. It's important for allies to take on homophobes so that queer people don't have to because it does take a toll on queer people's mental health. So creating those safe spaces, I think, is an important aspect of allyship. And it's an important aspect of recognizing that there are queer people around you. So do you have any examples or any incidents that you could share with us when you have felt supported by others around you? I think the way my family has dealt with, I think has been fantastic. I think the way my parents, you know, have never sort of forced me into things that other queer people I know have been faced into, the way my parents have been nothing but accepting and loving of how I am and coming out, I think that to me has perhaps been uh, the greatest support that I know because I know at the end of the day I will have a safe space to return to. And I recognize that most people don't have that. You know, no matter how bad things get, you know, I can still go home and have a cup of chai with mom and things suddenly do seem better. So can you tell us a little bit about how you came out, you know, because this is something that a lot of people, like you very rightly said, on any table, there would be many queer affirmative people, whether they are out or not. And a lot of times why people hesitate to come out is because they don't know how to do it. So at what age did you come out? And uh, if you tell us a little bit more in detail about it. 
So I came out in March of last year. I think the way I came out was something I would not advise people to do. I had come out to my mother before that, but the way my father learned was through a Facebook and Instagram post after which I shut off my phone and took a nap for 30 minutes <laughs> and woke up to frantic phone calls from my parents and you should have told us. Like, but the mom knew, but like they won't, mom was of the mom thought I should have told her before I ended up doing it. Coming out to her, and I think that came out more from a place of concern than a place of you shouldn't have, uh, you know, come out. I think that came out from a place of concern, and I know it came out from a place of concern because she's told me. I think for them, I think it has definitely been a journey to kind of. I don't know if I can speak to that, but the way we have those conversations, I think. It has taken them some time to come around, though not much, but it did take them a few days or weeks to kind of get around, or at least a few hours, if not more. Not that they were not accepting, but I think, you know, except there's a long distance sometimes that you have to travel over a course of going from acceptance to kind of being a proud parent of a queer person. And I think that as much as parents need to understand that they do need to be loving and accepting of their queer kids, I think it's also on us queer kids to recognize that you know, our own parents will have a journey of acceptance. As long as they are on that path, I think things will get better and things do get better. I've heard this from friends, you know, parents coming around after a year, parents coming around after decades even, in some of my older friends. Thankfully, I never had that. I had the support from day one. But, you know, I think it's, it's not going to be a game of one than, you know, your parents accepting you. Although I hope it is, but if it is not, I think we need to be slightly more understanding in that it's going to be a journey. And as long as they do not create an outwardly hostile environment, like forcing you into conversion therapy or something like that, discussions can be had. As long as there is acceptance, I think there is some hope for that relationship to be mended. I think that's a very pertinent point you've raised, you know, of conversion therapy, because a lot of parents struggle with the orientation of their child, you know. Uh, I, I know many so-called modern parents who sometimes struggle with the sexual orientation of their child. Could you tell us a little bit more about it and any incidents that come to your mind where conversion therapy has been very, very traumatic? I think what comes to mind is the case of Anshla Harish, uh, this 20-something, I think 21-year-old student who was 21-year-old student, native of, I think, Kerala, uh, who, who died by suicide. Uh, she had come out to her First, to her family as a bisexual person a few week back, weeks back, and they forced her into conversion therapy. Now, one thing that we need to understand to, about conversion therapy is that A, it is illegal, right? It is banned. No, no, the National Medical Commission and the Indian Psychiatric Association have been very clear that homosexuality is something that can, that is not to be cured. Uh, the Madras High Court has banned conversion therapy, right? So not only is it illegal to perform it, it is inhuman, it is cruel, it 
puts in, and there's nothing to be cured. First of all, let's be very clear with that. Queer and trans people are valid. Their sexual orientation and their gender is not something that you can cure. That's not something you should be curing. That's not something you should attempt to cure. So what happened was that uh, she died by suicide because her family forced into, I think, what was they called the de-addiction center. So these de-addiction centers are usually, in some cases, run by doctors, and in other cases, you have all those god, godmen and quacks who run these uh, centers. They were tantric babas who can cure you of your queerness. And it's not some, it is not only just some random Baba sitting, it's Baba Ramde who's come out and said yoga can cure homosexuality. Uh, and so it's important to recognize that this is illegal, this is inhuman, this is pseudo-scientific, and people have died because of this. This is a very human uh, issue. Mm-hmm. This is a very human, inhuman It's a human issue. rights issue, I feel. It's a human, it's a human rights, rights issue. Yes. It's a human rights issue. It's a public health issue. It's a massive concern that people have to, so society has to deal with it. There are doctors, bigoted doctors online on YouTube, if you move a conversion therapy, there are a bunch of Indian doctors who, can, who go around uh, doing this. So it's important to recognize that people, that homosexuality is not something to be cured. It's not something that you can cure through, you know, going to a tantric baba or a psychiatrist or some what have you, you know. It's something that you must accept, that you should accept. I think that's a very pertinent point, you know, and uh, a lot of times people love to make guinea pigs of other people. Now, no one asks a heterosexual person, uh, about uh, a lot of uh, details about their sexuality or their frequency. But, but I know for a fact that a lot of people who are queer affirmative or with the LGBTQ community, they have faced a lot of bullying and a lot of intrusive questions. Any instances that come to your mind that you have faced any of such issues or bullying? No, I think... Uh... For me, bullying started somewhere around seventh grade, went all the way up to twelfth grade. You know, I don't remember a single time I was called by my name. You know, they used all sorts of slurs that I did not utter simply because I, not because I don't want to, but simply because I find them disgusting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, again, this brings me back to my previous point that you were talking about, that, you know, teachers need to be, equipped with tools to deal with bullying and homophobia. As long as, because let's be clear, students spend most of their, school school students especially, in primary and middle school spend most of their time in schools. That's where schools turn into places where queer students face violence. I thankfully never had physical violence. I only had, you know, bullying and taunting that was usually verbal, but uh, thankfully, it never got violent for me, but it does get violent for people. People get killed because of that. People get, people are driven to suicide because of that. So teachers at that point can perhaps be the most important tool and the most important asset that a queer student can have in not only creating a safe space, but also preventing bullying. 
So I think it is, it is, it is, it is disastrous. Nothing short of disastrous that Indian teachers to this day have no tools to help their students deal with it. I was talking to that. I don't know if I should disclose their name, I does not, but this director of this really famous school. Uh, and we were in conversations about having, you know, an anti-bullying campaign and to distract with the teachers. And the thing that he was worried about the most was how will the parents take it? And like, you don't have to tell parents that this is happening, you know, because for the sake of the queer child, I'm going to assume that the home is a place of violence if the child were to come out as queer. Let us give teachers the tools that so even if the kid is in school from say seven to two or nine to five, mm-hmm. that school becomes a safe place for that queer kid. No, you don't have to tell parents if you're afraid of backlash from parents, and that is a legitimate concern because let's have it. Education is a business at the end of that day, and the teacher needs to, the school needs to earn. But do you want to do that at the cost of your, the lives of your students? Is a question that your school authorities have to grapple with. Uh, this brings to me to back to that case of the DPS child who died by suicide because of homophobic bullying. Teachers could have been equipped to recognize signs of bullying, to recognize signs of homophobia, to recognize that these are conversations that they need to be having with their children in their classes, you know? No kid is too, too young to learn about queer rights and queer issues. No kid is young enough to know that a man can love another man or a woman can love another woman or somebody who's assigned male at birth does not have to identify as a male all throughout their life. And that if they were to identify as a female or a gender non-conforming person, it's perfectly valid. Kids need to be told that they are valid. Kids need to be affirmed, not only for the sake of their own identity, but for their own emotional and mental well-being as well. They need to be told that their identities, if they are clear, are valid. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, that's we, so pertinent, I think. You know, there's a very valid point that you have touched. That in class seven, perhaps you became aware of your orientation. That's when there is budding sexuality. But it took mm-hmm. you a very long time to come out to your parents, you know. I would assume at least, uh, but your classmates probably knew. Can you tell us a little bit more about that point, you know? I think for me, it took a time not only coming out to my parents, but coming out to myself. I think that was an important journey that led to, and believe it or not, mm-hmm. that journey for me has been to finding love. Can you elaborate a little bit about it, specifically what what happened and, you know, so that our viewers know exactly how it happens and not judge themselves, you know? Right. For me, it happened through finding love with a boy and somebody, you know, I still talk to often. And for me, I think recognizing that, 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 you know, that I could, you know, growing up in India, you know, I wrote, when I was writing about this once in my journal, I wrote that. Growing up in India, the thought of displaying affection for another man is doomed to give way to the perpetual fear of its consequences. But, you know, for me, and I definitely that this can be different for different people, but for me, what has happened is that love gave me the tools to not only accept myself, but to also come out to my own self. Sure, I was, you know, having. Sorry, mom, if you're watching this, but I was having sex with men by then. And, uh, but recognizing that, you know, I was queer was uh, an own journey in itself, even before coming out to my parents, I think it's an important journey coming out to yourself. And with the amount of heteronormativity that's been fed into 
our lives and in the media that we consume. I think coming out to yourself is a first important step of your career journey. And how old were you when this happened? This was 20, I want to say 2019. See, this is what happened. I lost track of pre-pandemic time, but I'm assuming pandemic came in 2020, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Pandemic was March 2020. And so this was June 2019. And so I was 20. Mm-hmm. So thank you for sharing that. And when you got bullied no in class seven, mm-hmm. What was it that mm-hmm. you got really bullied about? I don't know. I feel like I've always different. I was that nerdy, geeky kid who kind of mm-hmm. sat in physical education period, reading his novels, not bothered by the world. Uh, you know, I'm told by friends that I was what they then called effeminate. Thankfully, they've all, you know, since I came out, they've all been on a learning curve of their own and they've Profusely apologize for that. And I think that has also been something that has healed our friendship and brought us closer as to now our writing. They all. Funny thing is that some of the people that bullied me are people who now, you know, come with me to gay bars and are my girlfriend in gay bars. Again, sorry, mom, if you're watching this, this doesn't happen. I'm joking about it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, you know, that kind of. I think we need to give people space to. Learn and more importantly, unlearn the things that we are fed. I don't necessarily blame them, you know, these men, because when growing up, you know, we are all fed into this idea of machismo and the toxic masculinity that we you know may not necessarily have uh, unlearned and unlearning them. That is a journey in and of itself. And they only started unlearning it when they realized I was queer. And it has been a learning journey for them. So recognizing that there are fewer people around you, that you need to be creating safe space brings me back to my first point and nicely ties this off, is that you, know, you need to recognize that there are fewer people around you, whether you know it or not. Mm-hmm. Whether they're out to you or not. Mm-hmm. And so for me, and for them, I think we've had conversations about this since then, is that they simply did not know that. They simply did not know what the word gay or lesbian or bisexual transgender meant. And since then, they've been on a learning curve. We've grown closer as friends because of that. They've apologized. We've healed and moved on. And I think that has been a really important journey in bringing us closer as friends. I think that's so well put. You know, a lot of times kids aren't mean to other kids. They just don't know how to deal with it. And a very pertinent point that you've brought about is our education system, our teachers, you know, if they had the tools, perhaps the India as we know it would transform. You know, we, we talk of transformation in terms of achievements in uh, a lot of technological sphere or even the economic sphere, but we very rarely talk about that transformation in our value system. But, and for that, we need a lot more resources. Uh, thank you for sharing that. And how do you think uh, these days in media, you know, there are a lot of references to people uh, who are queer affirmative or who are not sure of their sexuality, you know, which was not the case even five years back. Now you just have to put on any digital media streaming. Do you think that helps uh, people or do you think it stereotypes further? I think there are two two ways of going about this. I think the first is the way that the stories are depicted. 
there are movies that have been open be transphobic and I've written about those movies. At the same time, there have been positive portrayals, uh, though not necessarily in India. Uh, I think Indian storytelling of queer lives has a long way to go. Uh, but there have been media on Netflix, Heartstopper, Sex Education series that I highly recommend not only kids, but also their parents watch. Uh, so, no, this piece of wisdom, the way these stories are told becomes an important step in whether these identities are stereotyped or whether acceptance grows. You know, there are studies which have shown that positive storytelling has increased acceptances amongst the most conservative uh, groups here in the US. Uh, and so, again, Stories are an important tool to transform lives and to transform public perceptions around issues. Stories are incredibly powerful, and the way they are told in turn can, you know, they can hurt and they can heal. For me, I think an important part of like my career journey has also been writing about my lovers, writing about my boyfriends on my blog, on on you know, on queer newsletters. So the way stories are told. And when these stories are told, it is also important that queer people are at the table because even if these stories are not told with malified intentions, as straight people who are usually writing these stories, they may not have the requisite, you know, lived experiences to tell these stories. Mm-hmm. It then becomes important that queer people take the lead because these stories are of queer people, you know, and you cannot tell queer stories without having queer people all throughout its but from the writing the story to its depiction, you can't have a straight man, and I'll take names again, like Ayushman Purana playing a transgender character, because, or playing a transgender character's lover, or Vani Gupta playing, what's her name, Vani Gupta? And Chandigarh Ki something, right? That one? Yes, Chandigarh Ki yes. Yes, yes. So you cannot have six actors playing queer roles simply because they do not have the lived experiences. Mm-hmm. And again, in that movie, the depiction of the way uh, gender reassignment surgery happens, gender affirmation surgery happens, and the way the person starts popping hormone pills is not how it works. Mm-hmm. Depictions have been inaccurate. Depictions in India have been stereotypical of what uh, is expected out of queer people, out of the straight. You know, these stories are written by straight people for a straight audience. Mm-hmm. They are not written for a queer audience or in a way that queer audience can locate themselves in their stories. For me, every queer story that is sold at some level finds resonance with me if it is well told. It doesn't have to be exactly my stories, but there are common themes that love run through our lives, all of our lives, you know, love, heartbreak, uh, sadness. These are things that are common to straight relationships and gay relationships as well, but the nuances of that differ widely, and which is where it becomes important to kind of have queer people in these uh, storytelling active exercises as they were. I think that's really a very pertinent point. But today, if I had to look at it, I would think about it like let's take the movie Chandigarh Ki Ashiki. You know, today, uh, as a heterosexual person, when I saw it, all I thought is, oh, okay you know, uh, at least people are now making movies about it. Mainstream actors and actresses are 
touching these characters, which earlier on they were not. Otherwise, these were issues which were probably discussed deep in the therapy room. And also, you know, I, I think another reason is uh, counselors also are sometimes not trained in how to deal with uh, queer affirmative people. And I think it's very, very important. And anyone working, it's strongly recommended that, you know, you first train yourself. We have the Mariwala Foundation. We have so many people who are training people, you know. So it's very, very important to do a QRCP program or something because I have seen even as a seasoned counselor, when I attended their program, my mindset opened up, you know, how, how would I tweak CBT to really get into the person's skin? And very rightly, like you pointed out, if I have always been straight and, and if I want to tell your story, I can only tell it from my lens, but I can't tell it from yours, which from your, your side could just be a caricature, you know, it, it could be a nod of understanding, but perhaps till I'm not formally trained in it, I may not go to the depth with you or help you explore that depth. And, uh, you know, I agree, Ari. I think my foundation is doing fantastic work. Um, and then, of course, I haven't taken it, but from what I hear from friends who are, who've, who've been with people who, and therapists who've taken that course is that they are fantastic. I think at some level, it also comes down to intellectual humility because hypertherapist is not trained in peer affirmative therapy. I think it's all right to say, you know, that I don't have the tools to help you, but here's my friend who will help you. Yes, absolutely. I think I, at some level, that intellectual humility becomes uh, important, mm -hmm. not only for, but I think it's an ethical duty that you have as a therapist mm -hmm. to do the best of what's best for your client. And then you just tying back into your idea about Chandigarh Karayashiki and, you know, how you thought as a straight person, at least these stories have been told by mainstream characters. I'm not denying that mainstream characters should think it, but mainstream, it should not become about mainstream characters. Now suddenly what's happened after Chandigarh Karayashiki is that it's turned out Ayushman Kurana. It's about how Ayushman Kurana takes on these unconventional roles. Uh, it is not about Ayushman Kurana ever. Exactly. It has never been about, it's about telling these stories of people who have lived those lives. So the plot I gets lost. Know. You're right. The plot gets lost and the main theme gets lost. And that's a very pertinent uh, point. I have to agree with, uh, I have to concede it. Absolutely. Very true. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and you know, I, I think uh, before we sign off, anything that you want to leave our viewers with that you want them to think about or something you feel will inspire them to be more supportive? I think uh, I would say this. I, think, I would say consume more queer media. Mm -hmm. You know, read books that are written by queer people in your field. I'm sure there are books written by queer people in every damn field that you can imagine. Mm -hmm. I once found a book about a queer person who's written about electrical engineering and queerness. So if I can find it, I'm pretty sure you could find books in any field about how to queer up your field. Doesn't matter, but, you know, read queer stories, consume queer media, and more importantly, be ready to unlearn, be ready to have difficult conversations, because what will happen is as soon as you start consuming these media, you're going to have difficult conversations, not only with other people, but also yourself. And I think what's important is that you be ready to have, a, they will put you in uncomfortable positions. They will make you sort of query your own biases and how you approach certain issues. Uh, so be ready to have these difficult conversations, not only with others, but with your own self as you consume these media. Mm -hmm. You know, and if you have money donated to queer causes, that's something I cannot stress enough, you know. 
the pandemic has made lives really terrible for queer folks. If you have extra money and if you're watching this, please, please donate to queer causes. Thank you so much, Rohan. It's been a pleasure chatting with you and I wish you it's all the pleasure. very best. Thank you so much.